Hey everybody, Nathan here, Sound of Sanity in the very near future. But first, if you love this show, we could really use your support. Please go today to patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity. That's patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity. Sign up today. If you don't know how Patreon works, basically you sign up to support us for a monthly fee as small as a cup of coffee at our good friends at Starbucks. In return, you get access to awesome behind the scenes content, including not available in any other place sketches featuring all your favorite Sanityville characters We've already recorded 15, count them, 15 He-Manologian skits that we'll be releasing there and absolutely nowhere else, including BJ's Lost Pipe, an ocean adventure, a jungle expedition. It's going to be a lot of fun. So if you like fun things, and especially if you like supporting great content that could really use your help to survive and thrive, go to patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity today. Plus, we get a bonus based on how much support we raise in the first month. So please act now. We appreciate anything you can do. And now, sound of sanity. You are now listening to the Sound of Insanity! Hey everybody, welcome to Sound of Sanity. This is actually Sanity at the Movies, and a happy October to you. We're mid-October now, if I'm not mistaken, and which I'm not, because I know the date that it is. And we are on our way for a fine episode of Sanity at the Movies. We are on our way to the Sanityville Movie Palace. We're going to watch the first scary movie ever to be made with sound to have talking in it. Oh, so let me introduce though our fine watchers on the threshold of doom today. That's you got me, Nathan, your humble and obedient ghost. You've got Jake Menskiller over there. How you doing, Jake? Sup, Nathan. Pastor. Then we've got Benjamin Good good luck there. Benjamin Bray Soul Soul like S O U L Zer. Are in Jafir. <laughs> we're we're on our way to the Sanityville Movie Palace, and Ben, you're driving us. Driving you. So anyway, we're gonna be watching Todd Browning's Dracula. We're also gonna be talking generally about vampires and vampire lore. And this is, even if you're not interested in Todd Browning's Dracula, I dare say this is a good episode for you to continue listening to. But let's talk real quick about Todd Browning's Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. To even call it Todd Browning's Dracula is weird because, as we've talked about before, the studio system was a studio system. Todd Browning wasn't some auteur that had a vision. He was just some guy, and he was a very stage-bound kind of a not... I don't know that he was a great director, but maybe we'll talk about that. This movie came out in 1931. It is the first movie to feature sound for a horror flick or a scary movie. It's the movie that set the template for what a vampire is like. It's very famous, Bela Lugosi, Hungarian actor. He had the accent. He That's just who he was. He was reading a lot of that dialogue phonetically. I want to suck. He doesn't actually say I want to suck your blood in that, but and children of the night, what music they made. That's, that's just how Bela Lugosi would say something like that. He had that widow's peak. He just happens to be that way. And that's how we thought, think of vampires ever since the man was buried in his cape true story no kidding so yeah he was typecast he had a pretty sad life actually after that as you can imagine he found it hard to break out of being the dracula guy he couldn't (laughs) get rid of his hungarian accent yeah yeah yeah. he was he always had poor english he had five wives he had he had been something of a star in his native country so he was always kind of reduced to playing these horror parts once he came here and got had some success with dracula and of course he, the story's a little unclear on whether he turned down Frankenstein or wasn't offered Frankenstein, but somehow he didn't get Frankenstein, and that was always the big mistake or big turning point, because if he had proved that he could do more than one kind of monster, and if he'd kept Boris Karloff from being his competition, he might have done better. This movie set the stage, though, for what a lot of this, it's weird, like there's armadillos in the yeah, movie, creepy armadillos, but yeah. it's funny because you're seeing like, you can see they're throwing all this stuff, and some of it's stuck. And if you go to a, you know the Halloween superstore to this day, you'll find spiders, you'll find creaky castles, you'll find a lot of stuff that this movie helped. Bats bouncing develop. on strings. Yeah, dumb bats <laughs> bouncing on strings. <laughs> what you won't find is armadillos. So that's just one that didn't really catch the uh, public imagination huh. the same way for whatever reason. 
there's there's not really a lot to talk about this movie. I think the, the the thing to realize about it is that sound had just come in, so it's a very stage-bound movie, much more so than Frankenstein, which people can listen to. We talked about that over on The Bookening. I don't know if that episode probably hasn't come out yet, but it'll come out within a week or two if it hasn't. Frankenstein's a much more... It's still Frankenstein's still pretty stage-bound, but compared to Dracula, it's a quantum leaf in terms of what they were able to do with the camera and filming outside and kind of Dracula is really, really anchored and held back by a stagey director, people that didn't know how to do dialogue. And it's just, to me, as somebody that enjoys the history of film, I think it's pretty fascinating to watch a transitional film. This movie was actually released in some territories with subtitles, with like title cards and with no soundtrack. The movie actually basically functions as a silent movie. A lot of it is silent. A lot of it's still pantomime. But then it has these clunky dialogue scenes through it. And I think it actually, to me, it makes it a little bit eerier than the original Frankenstein or some of the more developed, more well-made movies that came out around that time because there's just this archaic kind of feeling that seeps into it. There's something of decay and of oldness that comes just through the limited technology, through knowing that all those actors came up in the silent era and are dead. It's, it's like a time portal or something. It's to put you guys in the headspace. Let's say someone is Jake's age when this movie comes out. This person was born in 1900, literally, maybe even 1800-something. This person... Yeah, this came out in 31. Yeah, so this person has... 1897. May have vague memories ish. of growing up without movies. In fact, they, their town may have just got their first theater. That When you think about how clunky some of the pantomime in this and how weird, and when you try and put yourself in the headspace of why was this also scary now that it seems, and you can say like, oh, we've absorbed these things culturally, whatever. But also just remember, there were people, if someone was 10 years older than Jake, let's say a man in his 40s, he definitely remembers a time before movies existed when they were just an exciting new technology that hit the a gimmick at circuses and stuff like that. So... When you think about how quaint this stuff is and you try and put yourself in the headspace, why did it have this power for people? You have to remember, you just have to remember that you grew up saturated by visual media in a way that most people watching this movie simply didn't. They, they were seeing some of this stuff. They'd read maybe Dracula or read some of these stories, read Victorian ghost stories around Christmas time. They'd never seen anything like this. Some of them had barely seen people walk around up on screen so movies are still even now at the same time though um this was a stage play before it was yes you can you can go see it on on a stage play and it's a cool stage play full of special effects and stuff like that but how many people would have seen that stage play i mean it would have toured a little bit it would have been in new york it would have been in la you know us here in bloomington indiana we probably didn't see that stage play so or if we did it came through town some people saw it. Is, is that the way it would have worked? Is it a, it would have come through town kind of thing? Or is it a, you know, a script could have been used by local players? I think of? specifically with Dracula, it was a touring production that was developed for a particular agency. So hmm. somebody controlled the rights. His name was Balderstein, if you really care. <laughs> um, Whoa. <but. laughs> Balderdash, more like. Yeah, well, you can, you can see him. You so, can see. So, so the rights would have been controlled, so it would have been a touring. That makes perfect sense, the way things right. still work. So, so maybe once in your life you'd seen a stage production, but I still submit to you that seeing if this up on the big screen. people were seeing stage productions, they were seeing Shakespeare and oh, sure, yeah. things. And well, and maybe you've seen a stage production of Dracula even, but you've seen it once. And, and the stage, I have seen the stage production that this movie is based on. It's really cool it's full of fog and special effects there's a part where dracula disappears there's a lot of cool stagecraft it's it's neat but i still think this movie for people back then would have had a great deal of elemental power for a lot of people not for everybody but for a lot of people that it's simply 100 percent impossible for us to now enter into i don't want to overstate it but just think about the fact that someone jake's age didn't actually grow up with movies or Ben's age or my age for that that matter because yeah. we're all basically the same age um, that's, that's a weird thought yeah so that's Todd Browning's Dracula I don't really know what else people need to um, Ben why are we slowing down Ben why are because we we're out of gas oh okay well, <laughs> on earth <laughs> uh, I like uh, the way you does. explain things sir. <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say besides that I, I'm really sorry guys I didn't check the tank because I thought you guys would have filled it up or nope my job is to appoint someone to do it, and I, of course, appointed our good friend uh, Benjamin Q. Solzer 
Well, he never texted me back, but you know oh. how you know how Q is. Well, doesn't Q like work for the Popcorn Coalition now? Uh, it's possible. It's so confusing sometimes what's oh, going on boy. with that guy. Well, we're we're out of gas now, so All right, so that was my first blame. question. My second question is: We were driving to the Sanity Field Movie Palace. Why yeah. are we out in the middle of Whoa, the countryside? What in the world? You you know you started talking about vampires and then that fog rolled in. My head got all like fozzy. I, I I don't know. It's like I'm waking from a dream right now. Where are we? I don't know. This is not the a way main that road. you always approach driving. That's the way I feel. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. And the way that you tend to approach I, I guess me I, talking. I guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess I was just trying to make an excuse. Well, let's go ahead and get out of the car. Is that the that's Clinton the, Mansion the up there? That's the Clinton Mansion. On the hill? You brought us all the way out here. Uh, people, I'm just going to, for our listeners, explain Hillary Clinton. I mean, everyone in Sanityville knows, like, we're t- the Hillary Clinton. Well, of course they do. Hillary Clinton is <laughs> the public figure. I mean, people might be confused, I guess. You think? We're not talking. Yeah, yeah. Well, well just so people okay, just know. explain it for the idiots. <laughs> yeah. Okay, all right. So, everyone, it's obvious, right? We're not talking about... Mrs. Hillary Clinton, the would-be lady president. We're talking about Sanityville's Hillary Clinton. The founder, Mr. Hillary Hillary Clinton. Clinton. Yeah, the founder of Sanityville. Legend says, it's it's kind of ironic we're talking about vampires tonight. Legend says that Hillary Clinton, who died 200 years ago or whatever, is is still around, you know, haunting Sanityville as a (laughs) a, a dangerous vampire. Right. (laughs) But, I mean, there's there's no credence. I don't give any. That's dumb. Jake, you don't give any credence to that story, do you? It's a pretty dumb story. It's dumb. But he does. I mean, that that is a giant, That is a truly spooky, giant mansion. I've never been out here. I'll give fake ghost vampire Hillary Clinton that. let's... Who's up for just going and exploring the creepy mansion and talking about vampires and maybe watching the movie on an iPad or well, something? Does, does what, anyone, seriously? Does anyone occupy? No, it's, is it's, that a light Everybody on knows in it's there? abandoned. And Do you guys see that? Well, I thought I saw a flickering light behind one of those upper windows. Yeah, all what, those windows whatever. are dark. Okay. But, okay. Uh, <laughs> right. It's probably... Dude, come on. Let's go. Yeah, all right. Fine. All right, I'm just gonna tell people. Let's your, see. Right, you, 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 hey, you guys, go ahead. I'm gonna I'm gonna call roadside assistance real quick, just so we can get some gas or something. So you guys go ahead up, and I'll, I'll be I'll catch up with you. Okay. All right. All right. Here we are. We walked, Jake. Uh, just to explain to the listener, we walked past the iron gate with the two gargoyles that was creaking in the wind, all the way up the yeah. gravel pathway, overgrown thorns of thorns and thistles and the the up to the ivy covered walls and through the big oak door with the knocker in the shape of a demon's head and uh, this Hillary Clinton seems like a really kind of a morbid guy yeah. but we're in the great hall and you lit a couple of the candelabras and there's yeah. it's a really it's really if you're if you're into <laughs> spooky stuff like I am it's uh I mean, there's shadows yeah, on the walls, and you can and hear the creaking of the old can't. house shifting in the wind, and I don't know. It's kind hey guys, of... Whoa! <laughs> whoa, I, whoa. Hey, sorry about that. <laughs> it looks like I got you there. Did you call... I didn't mean to. Ghost side assistance? <laughs> ah, that's right. That's Roadside really funny, assistance yeah, is the pun I did. Road okay. died. Oh, yeah. Road died. I, 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 <laughs> right, I did. That yeah. Everybody's getting into the Halloween spirit here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You got your uh, die pad? Got my die pad. All right. Let's, uh, let's just sit down in this decrepit old Davenport, I think they would have called it back in oh, Hillary boy. Clinton's day, and we'll we'll watch this uh, this film as the house creaks and shadows creep around us. All right, we're watching the film. All right, we're done watching Dracula. We're here in this spooky old house, and it got dark outside. The fog has kept rolling in, and man i don't know i hope roadside assistance can can make it out here with the, uh, the, i haven't gotten a text yet they usually send a text before they're on their way so yeah well it's strange that it took over an hour so far yeah it is it is strange it's like oh, this is just a weird night yeah uncanny one one might even say yeah well what did you guys do you like that movie to be honest i was sort of falling asleep yeah yeah i was, was kind of looking at other stuff on my phone while we were that was playing it's pretty creaky no pun intended pretty old 
It was interesting as sort of a relic of an artifact, like you said, a time capsule or something like that. And especially, you know, this is the performance that gave us all of our modern notions of what Count Dracula and vampires look like. That it was interesting to see the original. But there's no pretending like it hasn't been thoroughly digested by pop culture. And when you see Bela Lugosi, you're seeing Count Chocula. You're seeing (laughs) Monster Squad guy. You're seeing every Saturday morning cartoon that had a vampire. Very creepy and uncanny if you do a close up of my face and I raise an eyebrow and Mm -hmm. And I (laughs) do my hand like it's a spider with my double jointed Hungarian fingers. My bat fingers. Yeah. Yep. Um, It's not much of a movie. It's It's an interesting time capsule. It's an interesting artifact and it's interesting to talk about vampires. So what was interesting to me is that the, with Frankenstein, which we watched for the bookening, there were no assumptions made, and they just totally butchered the story. Right. Not so with Dracula. What There were a lot of assumptions made that people just know things about vampires coming in, and they would know the name... Uh, Nosferatu. Nosferatu, right? It was sort of whispered and was in a way that was like, oh, anybody coming heard the name Nosferatu might get a chill down their spine like it's ominous sort of sort of thing it wasn't explained it wasn't um even Van Helsing wasn't explaining a whole lot about the the lore right of vampires it was just sort of like you know here here's a crucifix here's Wolfsbane here's just the 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 barest details so it seems to me like there was I don't know a lot of assumptions about like the vampire culture or or vampire lore was was pretty well known. Yeah. That surprised me a little bit. Well, let's talk about vampire lore in a little segment I'm going to call Vampire Lore. Is it going <laughs> to sound s- similar to facts? No, this is going to be a very much more spooktacular than Facts has ever dreamed of being in its okay. worst nightmare. Disney Facts <laughs> yeah. or Netflix I mean, we could call Facts it or Vampire Gore. <laughs> 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 Maybe not. <laughs> Let me let's talk about vampires because I think they're an interesting cultural touchstone and a helpful metaphor. And I don't know, there's a lot to say about vampires, and there it's it's uh, might be worth knowing a little something about them. Let me read a quote from an old book. Where the devil finds greatest ignorance and barbarity, there assails he grossliest. That's from a dissertation called Demonology, written in 1597, which details all manner of witchcraft and necromancy. There's not a section that actually uses the word vampire, but there is a section, and this was meant to be taken seriously. This was a discourse that went out to all the people in this era, in in England specifically. They were supposed to read it, and priests especially, or noblemen, could get their philosophy of what the different dark arts were up to, and how to deal with them, and how to deal with heretical evil things. And there's a section on incubi incubi and succubi, the demons that can inhabit the corpses of the dead and prey upon the living. And it was something that this particular individual that wrote this thing took seriously. Does anyone want to take a guess at who the author of Demonology, or does anyone just know? Yes, I do know, or I thought I knew, but I can't think of the dude's name. I think if you knew, you'd be able to think of the dude's name, because you know this person's name. It's not a hard yes, name. Yes, I know, I know. The, is it Knox? No. No. It, Even more interesting, I would argue. 1597, you're, you're in the right era, but not really in the right ballpark of type of person. Yeah, is it? it's the Roman Catholic dude that got... Oh, no, no. It's King uh, James. King James the first. That's King right. James, really? Yes, yeah. sir. I knew that. Yeah. I did know that. The full, I, th- I thought maybe you would. The full title is Demonology in Form of a Dialogue Divided into Three Books by the High and Mighty Prince, James, etc. Yeah. So he wrote this discourse on, and it's got how to deal with witches, how to deal with incubi, how to deal with succubi, how to deal with all this kind of stuff. And it's very vampiric. And my point, vampires and vampire-like creatures are almost universal across every culture. People have always had these kinds of stories that they tell. The undead that prey on the living. The undead that prey on the living or the demonic creature, humanoid creature that feeds on life force, that feeds on blood. If you got the Lamia in Greek mythology, it was was either she or them, different groups of serpent women who would feed on children and men. The Hebrews and the Greeks had Lilith. Guys probably know Lilith a little bit in certain in some Kabbalistic mythology. She's the 
first wife of Adam who mm-hmm. refused to submit to him and was banished. And then God gave Adam Eve and Lilith became a demon of the night that would prey on children and drink blood. She's a very vampiric kind of figure in some mythology. In other mythology, she's more of a, a child stealer. And then in others, sometimes she's just Adam's true first wife. But there's other creatures like her in the mytho- in the people groups around Lalutu, L- 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 if that's how you say it. The Persians had a Lilith figure that was like that. You can actually find old Persian pottery shards that have depictions of blood-drinking humanoids preying on the living. Where you see the term vampire and the idea begin to get codified is in Bavaria in Eastern Europe, where they had these shrouded bloated corpses basically it would be your relative died and then your relative would crawl up out of the grave and feed on you it was all very familial and incestuous but it wasn't quite as like vampires now are almost universally known to be sexy you know i mean when we think of vampires we think of you know a couple years ago it was edward and bella and twilight and sparkly vampires and stuff like that but really for the last ever ever since Anne Rice and all this stuff. Vampires have been sexy for a long, real, really since Bela Lugosi. Right. Vampires have been sexy, and Bela Lugosi is a, whether you, whether you find him now to be a sex symbol. Watching it, he was a sex symbol. I mean, women loved, especially to go see the play, which is what Lugosi first starred in. I probably should have said he was considered to be a handsome, mysterious European sex symbol kind of a guy. He's not playing the monster. He's very much playing Dracula as sex symbol. Whether it reads that way, whether it reads all that sexy now, I don't know. Not being a woman and not being attuned to, you know. The sensibilities of the time. The sensibilities of the time. But the the vampires in Eastern European lore were much more just monsters. Just, it would be like Ben Solzer dies and then he decides that he's going to come and feed on his family and he's just this bloated corpse. With bad ears. Yeah. With bad ears. You can imagine people just being more in touch with death, people seeing more corpses, people seeing more disease, people digging up great. You can imagine that our lives are sanitary and so removed from those realities. Our lives are so antiseptic that we don't have to deal with the decay of the human body with what happens to corpses, with the bloating of corpses, for example. The way that a lot of poor people in Eastern European countries in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries would have had to deal with. We haven't had to come up with lore to mitigate the tension. We haven't had superstitions built. I mean, we have, we have theirs, but we don't have to deal with it like they did. So they had all these stories and you'll read accounts, especially in the old witchcraft manuals of which the Catholic Church is full of them. If you're, if you want to, you shouldn't, but if you're studying demonology or the Catholic Church is going to be your go-to place where they have the witch hunters and the heretic finders. And these people have manuals where they'll tell all the stories, the exorcists. Well, an exorcist used to be class of, uh, not maybe not officers, but a class of something in the early church. Like an exorcist was like an evangelist, an exorcist, a presbyter. Yeah, and it gets weird and in the Catholic Church in the later centuries, you know, 16th, 17th, it becomes codified in some really creepy ways. There's hmm. you can find you can find stories of people, you know, there, there was Matthew I want to say his name was Matthew Henry, but that's not right. Matthew somebody, the witchfinder general, who who was just a very famous guy that burned witches and found witches and found witches out. And you can it's it's kind of fun and interesting in a morbid sort of a way to try and read between the lines and figure out whether any of these people were sincere or whether this guy just liked burning women, as most modern liberals would read the text. And I don't want to really get into all that. I will say I think probably we can do them the credit of saying there's a little bit more sincerity than certainly modern academia wants to give it among some of these people. Certainly the Old Testament treats witchcraft as a real thing. King James was no idiot. That's why I started with King James, because Mm. this is the guy that gave us the most famous Bible. This is a great king. He took this stuff seriously, Mm -hmm. and he would have been a well-educated, knowledgeable, philosophical, theological man in many ways. So yeah, this lore has been universal throughout history. I was trying to come up yesterday when I was thinking about this with a terminology because I'm not sure. I, I would consider these things to be a vampire is like, let's, let's call it an essential myth. It's a myth that is so useful as a metaphor and so sort of self-apparent that it 
spontaneously generates everywhere you go. There's not a lot of societies or cultures that don't have it. And it just seems to be something that people have always not necessarily believed in, but they've always they've always had it as a mental handle, as a go to metaphor, as something like, like an ex another example of what I would say is an essential myth would be like a dragon. We could argue back and forth about whether there's ever been any dragons, but either way, dragons have always been in the popular imagination. You know, Jung would say the the subconscious people, right. people have always. Subconscious. Yeah. People have always believed in dragons and they're so useful. You just can't imagine not having dragons as a way of thinking about the enemy, as a way of thinking about the great forces that are arrayed against you in your life, as a way of just processing things. Dragons are really helpful. Now compare that to something that I would say is like a non-essential myth that would be like a unicorn. There's no story about a unicorn that you can't just swap a horse in there and it's basically the same story. A culture, a culture doesn't need unicorns in order for it, the life of its imagination to flourish in order for, you don't need unicorns in order to understand yourself, but you kind of need dragons. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think I would put vampires more in that class. And I think that's why most every culture without consulting each other sometimes have come up with the idea of a predator who drains the life force. And it's usually the blood of a thing that creeps in at night and steals away some of some of your life. And of course, the blood is the life. So we all know that. Which Bill Lugosi reminds us of. Yes, which he does. Early which on. he does. <laughs> Vampires are really primal and really useful metaphors. They've just always been kind of universal, even though they haven't already always gone by that name. People have always understood. I mean, I think it's just like, even though we've never met a dragon, we've all met dragons. The dragons are Russia. The dragons are Donald Trump. The dragons are the liberal Illuminati. You know, whatever you want to say the dragon is in your life, you know what it is. In the same way, even though we've never met a vampire, we all know vampires. We all know predatory people that drain our life force. And some of them are pretty scary. And it's one of those universal myths that's that's helpful it's a it's a useful handle to be able to hang thoughts on to think about who's a vampire and who's not a vampire and what vampires and then it's interesting to think that they got sexy that they became very sexualized you read bram stoker's original novel which really served to codify vampires and add the garlic and all, all the rules that we know running water and stuff like that those rules all existed in different places, but Bram Stoker put them all together and codified them. But you read the original Dracula, which we've done on the, our podcast, The Bookening. He's a monster still in that. Mm -hmm. He's not particularly sexualized. There are some very sexual scenes with Dracula's brides and then when Dracula, especially when he um, preys on Mina. Mina, Mina Harker. But it's, it's a very monstrous kind of sexuality. If, if it's a metaphor, it's not a metaphor for seduction. It's just a metaphor for rape or for predatory sexuality, mostly. Yeah, the, the brides, it's, it's a metaphor yeah. for seduction. There's yeah. no question about that. Fair. But Dracula himself, it is more rape than seduction. Well, you know, I get what you're saying, but and you're right, but also compare that to later vampires and it's right. become very seductive it's become very sexy we like the vampires they're these baronic anti-heroes yeah. we want to be seduced by them there's an element of horror in the uncanny in the seductiveness that you see in stoker that is different in quality it's not like it's like it's wrong right in an awful gut-wrenching sort of way in in Stoker in a way that now it's like cool. Yeah, it's blasphemous, it's bad. You wouldn't wish it on anyone. You wouldn't wish it on yourself. You might get some unclean, sort of unclean, perverse. Unclean. Yeah, that's what Mina Harker, the, the famous image from the novel is the men burst in on Dracula and he's making her drink the blood from his chest and they, they chase him off and then she says, unclean, unclean, unclean. It's a really potent, awful, horrible, image and if there's anything sexual or attractive about it it's completely perverse yeah but more modern vampires if ever since well if it's sexual it's not attractive right exactly it's just it's yeah precisely so you, the i believe it's 1922 if i'm not, if i'm remembering correctly i didn't look this up but nosferatu the movie the german movie comes out that vampire very famous vampire i know you guys have seen him he's the creepy skulky rat looking guy yeah. uh, with kind of a hunchback he is a total monster Bela Lugosi comes along and really changes things by really playing up the seductive angle in his way. Everything's just been about that dance between sex and death with vampires ever since. You could argue about whether it's always been there. I mean, a lot of the things I named, like Lilith and the Lamia and the Incubi Definitely and Succubi, sexual. certainly 
I, I, there's parts from King James' dissertation that I can't tell our listeners about because they're so graphic in their description of how to identify one of these creatures. But yeah, so there's always been that element of sexuality, but the 20th century and the 21st century have really embraced the sexual and found the found it pleasurable. You know, it's always been a useful metaphor. It's actually become a less useful metaphor now because as long as you're acknowledging that it's monstrous, it's helpful. Once you begin to make it transgressive in an attractive way, right. then it starts to lose its potency as a... Yeah, absolutely right. So, yeah, I don't know, Jake. It's, uh, Ben, it's a, it's, a little, it's a little creepy talking about this stuff and now that it's night and some of the fog is kind of coming in through the cracks there and shadows are really playing on the wall right now and... Um, Who's that? Oh, hey guys. Hey, how you doing? Sheesh, Ollie. Ollie, that's Ollie. It's what in the world are you doing here, man? Roadside assistance sent me out. They said Mr. J. Solcer called. Wait, Ollie, do you just work for every conceivable odd job business? No. Well, this is just a job I picked up recently. Oh, okay. Did you a little extra pocket money? Bring some gas for? Of course. Yeah, I already put a gallon or two in your tank. Uh, okay. Well, uh, yeah. Let's uh, let's get out of here then, man. Yeah, you guys really should get out of here because you know this is the home of Hillary Clinton, and <laughs> Hillary Clinton is a vampire. Ollie, you guys are probably in terrible danger. You don't right you now. don't believe those old wives' tales, do you? You guys can laugh all you want, but uh, sometimes you know the time comes when you. You can't laugh anymore because, uh, well, it's it's just not the time to laugh at that time. Uh, uh, look, 205 score years ago in this territory here, where the town of Sanityville would be built, the bold explorer came through the mountain passes, carrying his family in a wagon. In fact, he was leading a caravan of wagons. Pioneers! Yeah, Hillary Clinton was a real man's man. He wasn't even scared of vampires, although perhaps that was a mistake. When he saw the lake here, Lake Sanity as it would soon be called, he decided this was a good place to settle. So he told all the families with him that this was where their journey ended and their new life would begin. They say he wasn't spooked or anything by the mysterious, desolate remains of the failed settlement they found near the eastern side of the lake. The other pioneers were spooked, but Hillary Clinton laughed about it. (laughs) Maybe that was just his pride. Okay, Ollie, that's a great story. Hillary said they would start their new town a little ways off from the western shore of the lake, and he named it Sanityville. And with the discovery of a big vein of coal in the nearby foothills... Okay, this is is all really fascinating. Well, anyway, the vein of coal would soon run out, and so would Hillary Clinton's luck. One night, after tucking his children into bed and kissing his wife, he left for a walk, carrying nothing at all. Uh, I mean, uh, nothing except his trusty rifle slung over his back. Okay, uh, Ollie, did we mention that we're in the middle of a So Hillary left his family sleeping at home and walked down to the lake. And as he stood there, he saw something on the farther shore. Some people say that even now, when you got a full moon and you go floating in the middle of Lake Sanity and look real careful, you can just make out a bunch of ghostly structures in the woods on the eastern side with torn curtains that shudder in the wind and restless shadow people moving here and there. That's what Hillary Clinton saw. Shadowy figures walking to and fro in the remains of the dead settlement. What were they? Who were they? I bet even Hillary Clinton was at least a little scared, but he had to know. He started stealing around the border of Lake Sanity, keeping just inside the cover of the woods, making as little noise as possible, going slower and slower as he approached the site of the strange phenomenon. And when he got to the edge of the ancient encampment, he stood peeking out at a shack here and a shack there, everything overgrown with briars and vines and a strange moaning filling the air. He shivered. It's just the wind, he thought. Just the wind whistling through these old shacks. Suddenly there was a rustling noise right by his ear, and something kind of slapped at his face in the dark. And then... Oh, I'm sorry about that, guys. I didn't mean to scare you like that. A heart attack. I'm really sorry, Mr. Alberson. It's just that I, I just remembered that I left the light on in my car. It'll run down the battery real quick, and then my boss... 
He'll have to send someone out to rescue me, like I came to rescue you guys, and then he'll be mad at me and stuff. I, I, I'm sorry, I gotta go take care of that right now. Yeah, well, what about the rest of the story? Seriously, man, don't leave us hanging. Huh? Uh, oh, uh, well, I mean, the story kind of finishes itself, don't it? I, there was a vampire, it kind of bit him, and he became an awful vampire too, and the townspeople drove him away, and yeah, it's very sad, very frightening. Look, uh, I'll be back in just a minute. Guys, let's talk a little bit more. This is what I propose to do, because there's not a lot to really say about this Dracula movie. Should people watch the Dracula movie? If you want to be bored yeah, and fall if, asleep. If you're a student of film or a student of vampires or something, it's it's, it's interesting as an ar- arcane object of study, I would say, as an artifact. Yeah. But yeah. it's not actually an entertaining movie at this point. No. Yep. Well, this is what I think we should do. I'm not going to pull out the deathmatch timer. I don't want to have any arguments today. Let's if you want to watch it, by the way, it is on Stars. Stars, yes. Which you can get a seven-day free trial for, which is what I did. Well, it's, it's also on Vimeo for free with the Philip Glass score. Oh. Yeah. Well, Stars is also free for a seven-day trial, and it has the original score. Well, Vimeo is also free for, like, forever. I owned it on Blu-ray, and <laughs> I <laughs> spent $20 <laughs> a long time ago <laughs> because my life was empty without it. Hey, guys, there's. I want to talk Did about... Did it fill up the hole in your life? It No. Somehow, so you know. It's got a Dracula-shaped hole. It's like I, <laughs> I, 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 I suck and suck and try and get life force into myself, and somehow I still remain cold and dead feeling. I don't know yeah. what my problem is as we approach the Halloween season, as we think about... I I think it's interesting to know where these monsters come from, and it's helpful to think them through. So let's start by talking about Dracula as Antichrist, because Dracula, as the first vampire overlord in literature, as the one that all the vampires now are based on, he's just a straight negative image of... Yeah, negative image of Jesus. Jesus comes, and he gives up his, his body and his blood for his bride in order to give her eternal life. Dracula comes and he feasts on his brides, on their body, and he drinks their their blood in order to give himself an eternal life that is a living death. Right. And what's compelling about that, it's profane. It's, It's basically like, what's the most holy and wonderful thing that we can think of? Jesus and Jesus' sacrifice for sins. Mm -hmm. Now, how can we use that to come up with the most profane thing possible. We'll just flip it all upside down. Right. And so we'll have a monster who is in every way possible a one-to-one opposite of Jesus. Right. And that'll be the, you know, how can we construct the most scary and terrifying villain ever? Let's take the hero of humanity, the savior of humanity, and let's invert him in every way possible. Mm -hmm. Let's make an antichrist. Let's make a, you know, the worst demon of all demons. And so that's what, I mean, that's where he comes from. It's just that simple and formulaic. Right. Well, and it's it's believable in a way because it's playing with things that we know that have real, real power. Yeah, that's and right. And that have power in our lives and that actually define our lives. And so the best or the worst, depending on how you want to look at it, horror stories always take something very basic that we understand about our own nature and just... And about the way God made the world. And about the way that God made the world and about... And God's about the way that God works in the world. Yeah. And they just twist it a little bit. So you take zombies and ghosts. In both cases, you are cleanly dividing something that wasn't meant to be divided, the body and the soul. And you're saying, this is what it would look like if a soul is divorced from a body and still operating. This is what it looks like if a body is divorced from a soul and, and still, still operating. operating. And right. it's creepy and it's uncanny and it's weird and yep. it's scary. And we are somewhat enticed by it or attracted to it because it's taking something that we understand to be very basic and just twisting it a little bit tweaking it a little bit if jesus gives his blood for the eternal life of his bride of the church of his people what if there were a creature that stole your life from you mm-hmm. by drinking your blood and insofar as jesus is the second adam i think of the first adam she shall be bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh well that's completely what dracula does in the famous scene with well with his brides with any anytime you see dracula and a bride that's yeah. That's what's happening, and it's completely profane and blasphemous and awful and evil, but it's a parody, if you will, of something that's real and good. Yeah, and that, but the fact that it is so closely and directly connected is what gives it its profane and uncanny vibe. 
right. is scary. Yeah. The closer something comes to being something that perverting something that we know. For example, a zombie dog isn't as scary as a zombie human because it's not violating us as much. It's not violating something as basic for a dog to be, you know, to be under the control of something. That's kind of what a dog is anyway. Mm. But a human being is supposed to have a brain and a soul and lights on inside its eyes. And, and so you take that away and suddenly you have a monster. Yeah, yeah. And, and like vampires, zombies can be a useful kind of a monster for thinking about sin. Like sin that makes us zombies. Right, or makes us ghosts. Or sinners that prey on the innocent and corrupt them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really think, as, as we talk about this, one point I want to make is horror is often the province of the young, young people. And, and I think it belongs there in a certain, in a certain like when I meet a 50-year-old and they're still really into it. I remember I went and saw Dracula. I've talked about going to see the Dracula play. There was this 40, 45-year-old guy who had like a black fake Halloween wig on and was dressed in black and kind of smelled bad. And he was just like this nerd. And I started talking about, I started geeking out about Dracula. And then he turned around and he knew all the Dracula. It was clear that he was just like really into it. He was just like this emo guy. There's something extra creepy about him being so old because I can understand a 15 year old is just experiencing, a normal 15 year old is experiencing sexuality, their own sexuality, the power of that. They're experiencing the idea that there's evil people. They have all this stuff that they're really trying to process. And so to have this big, bold, splashy, colorful metaphor to process it can actually be helpful for them. Or at least it's understandable why they'd be they'd, they'd want it. Whether it's ultimately helpful or not, we can, we can talk about. But when you get a little bit older, it's like you should be able to process this. You, you, you actually don't need vampires as much. And it's a little, and it feels a little bit ookier to me to see an old person that's still into this stuff and as you get closer to death and as people around you die and you understand that death is an enemy and it's kind of a boring prosaic horrible enemy as opposed to a big romantic exciting enemy people die and it sucks and they're dead suddenly the excitement goes away what about sex that's the other obvious thing that you kind of have to talk about with these vampires like i was saying earlier i don't know that vampires have in some sense they've always been sexualized but there's a new kind of sexuality really ever since this bela lugosi movie it's been explicit where once it was subtext now it's text what is it that makes people want to move these creatures in that direction and use them that way and go all sexual and get why why do we write romance novels about vampires why did women go and watch bela lugosi as a attractive person I mean, women went and saw this Dracula movie and they were frightened by it when it came out, but they were also enticed by it. Well, they want what's forbidden. John Dunn once wrote a poem about a little parasite. Yeah, two of them. Mm-hmm. Fleas. Yeah, he's got two poems about fleas and they're erotic poems about fleas. They're erotic poems about fleas. Yeah. And what's erotic to him about the fleas is the fleas, a flea drinks the blood of his lover and drinks his blood and now their blood is mingled together. Mm-hmm. And that's erotic because it's a fluid swap. Yep. So for John Donne, that was a metaphor for sex. Mm-hmm. And what we have in vampires are these creatures that prey, primarily a, a dominant man preying on a young virginal woman mm-hmm. by biting her neck and drinking her blood, or forcing him to, or forcing her to drink his blood. Right. And it's just a, it's it's a pretty naked metaphor for sex, actually, and for sexual predation, mm-hmm. and for forbidden sex. At the same time. In in Stoker's Dracula, John, Jonathan Harker is he's got his encounter with the brides, and they're licking their lips, and it's very it's very lascivious is the word that comes to mind. Yeah, they mean bite him, but what they're saying is, which one of us shall give him a kiss first, sister, or something? I think right, that's a line yeah. of dialogue, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and he finds them very compelling and attractive, mm-hmm. and also he knows that it's wrong and he's able to resist he has the willpower to resist but you know it's a very naked metaphor for for sexual temptation right and so this is the way that vampires work they stand in for sexual predation sexual temptation for lust lust for the the for the forbidden uh transgressive sexuality altogether yeah and in the 80s what did vampires turn into Anne rice's novels which were very popular when we were 
little kids are all man-on-man vampires. That's, that's what, right. That's what it's. That's what it went to. And the famous movie is uh, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt, and they're in a, a lover's relationship with each other. That's right. And so it's again just another metaphor for transgressive sexuality. Right. But as the line for what's transgressive gets moved around, vampires kind of yeah. trail behind, you know, or maybe trail ahead, or if, if that's a phrase. Yeah. So vamp, you know, it's not now a dominant man preying on innocent women. It's men preying on each other and sucking the life force out of each other. Mm -hmm. Let the reader understand. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe the one point to make there is we think we are so open. You know, our movies are so vulgar and we talk about sex and we're so scatological and everything. We think we're so comfortable with our own sexuality. But the fact is everyone in our culture in America today, I submit to you, is terrified of it, and especially the kids that watch these movies. But I would just say everybody is, because why do we still need these metaphors? Can't we just talk about... Because we're too afraid to process things openly and honestly. Yeah. And so we process them through horror, through metaphors that allow us to have some kind of catharsis. And that makes sense when you're in the Victorian era and nobody supposedly, as we understand the stereotypes, nobody wants to talk about their guilty secrets. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that they even have sex. And so they write these stories and Bram Stoker writes Dracula. You would think, following that logic, that in the 20th century and 21st century, as we've become very open about these kinds of things, that those stories, we wouldn't need the allegories. They'd go away. We'd just be able to talk about it. And it turns out that's not what happened at all. That's because the guilt and the shame hasn't gone away. No. The guilt and the shame haven't gone away because we've not actually processed them openly before God and honestly before God. And so we still need a way to process the guilt and the desire and the temptation that allows us to externalize it and allegorize it and make it into a metaphor. Right. Mm -hmm. So that we can feel better about our lives because it's all in there. The thing that annoys me, when I was sort of getting finally repenting and getting out of a lot of this horror stuff, one of the things I realized was it's fun when we externalize these things and defeat them. In other words, you watch, you read Dracula, you watch an old movie, they externalize everything that you're dealing with and they put a stake through its heart. We don't really do that anymore. That's not how these movies work. Everyone's so guilty and ashamed and... The monster has wins. So little faith in good that, yeah, the monster wins, even if it's kind of a winking thing where they defeat Freddy, but then there's got to be 40 sequels. So, you know, at the end, he's going to pop. But the monster always wins. And that's not as cathartic. That's not as cathartic. And even if we can argue about whether yeah, you should well, look and for it, catharsis. And it's a commentary on a commentary on our culture from arising from our collective subconscious or its direct willful commentary. We're ruled by the monsters now. Mm-hmm. We've let them loose and we're ruled by them. And so they rule us and they win and we can't control them. And maybe we don't want to control them. Well, the only thing to do is the oldest trick in the book, which is to worship worship them. The right. heroes are the monsters now. I mean, you watch any kind of modern horror movie and oftentimes it's just done with a wink, but Freddy and Jason aren't the bad guys in their respective fran to use an old something from our childhood. They're they're not the bad guys. You're supposed to root for them. The audience is supposed to cheer when they kill the annoying teenagers. It's you don't really to... want Michael to die at the end of the movie. You want Michael to pop up again and still be there around the corner. Yeah. Which is, there's something like downright, I want to say like Babylonian about that. We're just going to worship worship our death gods that kill people for us and enjoy their slaughter. There's something very primal and very pagan and very wicked about it. Well, you know, if you just sort of try to ritualize it, there's a reason why the Day of Atonement is coincides with harvest. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why all of our, our times of reckoning with death and sin and forgiveness come at harvest time and in the fall when the leaves turn and when death and decay come in. Mm-hmm. And things have been, you know, it's in the seasons, it's in our DNA. There's a reason why Halloween and October. Absolutely. And so what, you know, if we're going to cast off real forgiveness and real redemption, then we need another way to process it. So we just ritualize it. And there's no defeat of death and there's no defeat of the devil and there's no defeat of our own sin and our own monsters and our own demons. And so all we can do is just have a a ritual cleansing, a cathartic season where we ritually cleanse ourselves. Mm. And and then the demons have to be able to come back next year so that we can do it all again and get it out of our system. 
deal with our guilty consciences, deal with our, the impending judgment that hangs over our lives, allow ourselves to go into some dark places, feel it by externalizing it out there for a time, and then, whew, glad we got that out of our system. Now we can move on to happier times and think about Christmas. Mm-hmm. So if all this stuff represents the horror movie industry, I mean, and even this old, boring Dracula movie, represents people's attempts at catharsis, they put their guilt into this monster and they kind of sexualize him too because they're, they're just fascinated by death and by the evil he represents. What uh, what place does this stuff have for Christians? That's another part of this discussion. Well, a very small one would be the answer. There's all kinds. It's a difficult question, I think, because there's all kinds of places where we mitigate the tension and we see catharsis. Yeah. And it's not necessarily wrong. You know, the scripture says, give wine to a dying man. That's not supposed to set a precedent for everything in our life, but we use humor. Laughter use, is cathartic. Yeah, we yeah. use all kinds of things. Well, see, mm-hmm. there's no problem with there's no problem with a parable. There's no problem with an allegory. There's no problem with scary things in our stories. When those stories are meant, like all good stories, to reveal something true to us about the way we are or about the way God made the world, to pull back the veil a little bit to help us get outside. You know, what's what does a parable do? A parable says, here is a lamb. Here's a, here's a man who has a precious lamb. And somebody came and took that lamb and killed that lamb. And because it's outside of you and externalized, you're able to identify with the man who had his lamb slain and say, that was a wicked thing to do. Mm-hmm. And then the guy telling the story says, oh, well, you're the man, right? Mm-hmm. Well, all he did was he externalized something true that had happened with David, right? I'm t- talking about Nathan and David. Nathan mm-hmm. told a story that allowed David to externalize his own sin, see it for what it was, and then pulled the rug out from under him and said, you're the man. And then David got it. He was able by externalizing his own sin to see how wicked and depraved he really is and what he had done. So is that what some horror movies do? I think so. I think if David decided that now his favorite thing was to hear lamb stories and he was going to get lamb collectibles and he wanted to see a new lamb story every day. <laughs> Without <laughs> ever actually repenting. Without actually repenting. Of, right. And That's maybe a- after he repented, yeah. maybe lamb stories would maybe lose their savor a little bit because, uh, you know, they'd remind him of some things that he ne- didn't necessarily want to think about all the time. And it wouldn't be healthy for him to dwell on in a morbid way. If David, all David ever wanted to do was go right up to the edge of his sin. He could process that. He could say, oh, well, that was a really horrifying sort of story. Let me live there. And he could go right up to the edge of processing his guilt and his sin by living with the lamb story and being angry at the rich man who took the lamb and feeling the pain and the, you know, all that stuff. And while refusing mm-hmm. to accept I'm the man, repent of his sin and deal with it. And a lot of what our horror films and the way that people treat horror is just that. We live there and we want to go right up to the edge of processing our guilt, mm. right up to the edge of really dealing with the fact that there is a holy God that we that we must reckon with, but go no further. So you're saying that if as long as I'm going to deal with my sin, I can watch pretty much whatever I want, including yeah. whatever horror movie that's, I want. That's what we're that's saying. That's obviously what we're saying. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Now, if there's any morons listening, then <laughs> they can, you know. I think, Nathan, there aren't any morons listening. <laughs> <laughs> there are other podcasts that they can listen to. I won't name any names. But, <laughs> you know, every week on Sound of Sanity, we say, you have to live the tension by faith. And every week we have to deal with the morons <laughs> who are like, well, does We're that mean I can do whatever I want? fairy tales. Right. Yeah, no. Right? Fairy tale, a good morality tale, has some real scary parts to it because judgment's real and there are consequences for our actions. Yeah, because I read, sin is real. Because I, I, sin and, is real because the is, devil yeah. is real. I read That's the right. novel Dracula when I was, tw- I want to say about 12, and I cannot tell a lie. I cannot tell a lie. It was very helpful. It was very helpful. What I la- locked on to was not how spooky Dracula was, although I loved that. I thought that was really cool. But... I really the and but the final third of the novel where the heroes hunt him down and they all band together to protect this beautiful woman that was actually what I loved and what I really keyed into and it's so corny and bad and poorly written when you read it again as an adult but it was actually a helpful thing to just give me a metaphor to latch on to like there's evil because I you know my parents were kind of in the process of breaking things were bad and to have to have it externalized and then to have this representation of oh you can just be a stalwart british gentleman and go after it you can you can you don't have to be you don't have you to submit to sauron you can you can you can get grab the ring and go marching towards mount doom you know 
it was that. And I don't want to overstate it. It didn't, you know, it didn't save me. And I needed to grow out of it. And I largely have. But I'm not going to pretend like it wasn't a helpful thing at the time. I don't know. Should people read Dracula? You can listen to our booking episodes for a much more extended discussion of that. Probably not. It's not that great of a novel, for one thing. But did it actually serve an allegorical, metaphorical purpose of the type that we're talking about in a helpful way for me? Yeah. If people have a, if people have a bad conscience about reading Dracula, I don't want to oppress them. I want them to feel fine to say no. I want them to say no to their kids if they want to. I'm not trying to make a statement one way or another about that particular thing. I just want to say, here's what I really want to say, and I think I've said this before on Sound of Sanity, maybe in the early days. Um, people always told me to stop being so dark. What they never told me was that God was a fearful God and that he was powerful. And when I finally was able to understand that, I understood that I didn't need these death gods. I didn't need to worship Dracula anymore because there was actually someone scarier. And when everyone was just saying, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't like someone that's scary. You should like someone that's compassionate. It's like, I get it. I get that they're trying to be helpful, but I'm a man. I wanted a conqueror and a king. And if you make light insipid, then I will worship darkness. And I don't know why anyone would blame me for that, honestly. I mean, it was wicked and it was sinful. Don't get me wrong. But we have to present God in all his glory in the thunder clouds raging. If we want people to not worship darkness, then we have to allow the light to have potency um, Mm -hmm. and power and glory that's frightening. We have to actually tell people about the judgment day. If you want people to not seek cheap catharsis in the judgment that happens in a dumb slasher movie, then tell them about hell. Tell them about heaven. Tell them about the final judgment. Tell them it's appointed man wants to die and let that sink in. Let them understand that there's a bigger reality. Give them the real thing to worship, Mm -hmm. the real thing that's uncanny and beyond them and bigger than them. Holy. Yeah, that's the word for it. If we don't show people that holiness is big and real, then they'll seek profanity every time because they're going to find something to worship. Okay, well, um, any other thoughts about vampires, Dracula, anything, guys? I think that about sums it up. People watch this yeah. movie. I think I already asked that. Only if you're interested in an artifact of the arcana culture. Of, yeah. 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 Yep. If you want to understand where the, your cereal box character came from, I suppose this is a pretty it's harmless way to understand it. Hey, uh, where's where's Ollie? Did he say he would be right back in just oh, a minute? He just said he was going to go turn the lights off on his... Maybe he just went home. I guess so. He said he'd be back, though. Huh. Oh, boy. Where's my car? It was just down the hillside, but I can't see anything in this fog. I don't know. I don't know if I'm going north or south or up or down or, or anything. What's going on? Wait a minute. What is that? Oh, no, it's Hillary Clinton. Ah, get off of me. I'm not going to become a vampire. No. Bleep bloop. Don't worry, Ollie. It is I, your robot pal, Radiohead. Everyone's favorite character, Radiohead. I will save you, Ollie. Initiating high stakes defense. Beginning punishment protocol. Bleep bloop. I'm gonna get you, sucker. Kill, kill, kill. Time for some batting practice. Let me show you my bang play. Better luck next time. Hillary Clinton, bangs for the memories. Wow, Radiohead, you overcame your fear and ran him off. Yes, I did, Ollie. He was a sucker for punishment. Huh? But today, he won the sweepstakes. Another one bites the dust. Yeah, okay, Radiohead, we get it already. He was a bat apple, but he's down for the count. It's too bad he had his head in the shrouds. Uh, Radiohead, are all these puns really <laughs> necessary? <laughs> Does not compute, Ollie. Does not compute. I don't think you understand what's at stake. I mean, I know you've had a great success tonight. For me, Ollie, success is simply pa for the corpse. Today, I see before me a grave new world. All right, all right. That's, that's really enough. 
Radiohead. <laughs> I thought Hillary Clinton was scary, but this is getting even scarier. But, Ollie. What? Always remember to look on the bite side of life. Hillary Clinton will not attack again for a while. On that, you can bet your batum dollar. Okay, okay, that's it. That was a pun too far, my friend. You're being a real pain in the neck. I, I, I mean, a pun in the neck. Oh, good grief. I'm going to have to manually deactivate this protocol. Where's that switch? Bleep bloop, Ollie. Calm down. Take it easy. Maybe from now on, you should get your coffee de-coffinated. No! Sound of Sanity today was Injafeared by Benjamin Soul, sir, or Ghoul, sir. And like all fine gore horn products, Igdeathutive Proghosted by Nathan Alberson and Jacob Menskiller. Until next, like vampires, until next crime. <laughs> until next crime. Children of the night. What music they make. <laughs>